have made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Now, at mile one, we do this weird thing. I find it weird where we preach before each other. And I'm going to give Steve a heads up. And this might not be the same thing, because once I get up here, it's completely different. And this morning, I'm going completely based on the spirit, because an idea came ahead last night. So further on this, in this message, and I'm going to be completely honest, Paul says that he came to the Corinthians trembling and in weakness, and that's exactly how I feel this morning. But I'm up, up here in my own strength, and uh, Paul says, I didn't preach with wisdom, I just preached the power of God, so I'm praying, and I know it's your prayer, that's what happens this morning. Last week, Paul mentioned, and I walk around a lot, I'm pretty comfortable up here after a while. Uh, last week, Paul mentioned that, uh, talked about the sun, and how the earth revolves around the sun. Well, Galileo... Uh, he was viewed as heretical. He wasn't the first to propose this, but he was one of many that said that the heliocentric model, meaning simply that the earth revolves around the sun, was true. And what was the church at this time was saying, no, this is not true. You're, 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 this is a heretical view. And during the Inquisition, this was actually said, the idea that the sun is stationary is foolish and absurd in philosophy, and formally heretical, since it explicitly contradicts, in many places, the sense of Holy Scripture. Now, we know today, Scripture does not say that the sun revolves around the earth. But this is what they're trying to say. They're trying to use the Bible in the wrong way to make mankind the center of the universe. At this point, they still believe mankind was the center of everything, so therefore, everything had to revolve around us, including the sun, the stars, what, what have you. So that's the moment what we could call foolish wisdom. Okay, we can look back in hindsight. Hindsight is twenty twenty, And we can say, although they thought it was foolish, it was actually a, a golden nugget of wisdom. It was true. Whereas today, we have people who the world would say is wise, but are actually quite foolish. Take Bertrand Russell, for example, for example who was a British philosopher. And he said, religion is something left, religion is something left over from the infancy of our intelligence. It will fade away as we adopt reason and science as our guidelines. Now, Bertrand Russell passed away almost 50 years ago. And we still see religion, not just Christianity, but religion in general, as a main staple in society. It has yet to pass away. So obviously, there's something wrong there. If after 50 years that he thought this was going to happen, and no, he's dead, and we still have religion, we're still going strong. He was foolish to think so. So very early in this passage, before we get to what what I'm speaking on, Paul is saying to to the Corinthians that they shouldn't be divided. See, they had placed their faith in men. Paul says, 
I'm hearing from you that, you know, one says, I, play, I follow Apollos, or I follow Paul, or I follow Cephas, which is Peter, or I follow Christ. And Paul goes to say, what are you getting on with? <laughs> he says, and he says quite sarcastically, has Christ been crucified, or has Christ been divided? Is the one that you place your faith in, has he been divided so that you had these divisions within yourself? He, he does it so sarcastically. He, he point, obviously, Christ is, is not divided. He's not split up into pieces. So why do you find yourself split up into pieces? And this is where we come into our passage, where he goes on to break down their wisdom, and he breaks down their faith and their leaders, and what, where their faith should actually be placed. But before we get into that again, I, want, I really want to give you a history of the crucifixion. Because Paul talks a lot here about the foolishness of the cross, of the message of the cross. And the foolishness, I don't think we can fully appreciate today because we haven't experienced what a crucifixion is. We don't have that in our culture. We don't have a shame-based culture here. So crucifixion at its very core was meant to torture someone. It wasn't meant to kill because there are much more efficient ways to kill someone. They tortured someone to the very end that they could, and then they, and then they died that way. It wasn't just a method to kill. It was pure torture. These people would be beaten. They would be whipped or flogged. And then they would be strung up in this cross, nailed to it in a very uncomfortable position where they wouldn't be able to exhale. So after being beaten, after being whipped, having your bare flesh exposed, they would have to push themselves up, whether through nails in their feet or their hands, and excruciating push themselves up just so they could breathe out, and then slump back down again and do it all over again. And there was no escape from this. Imagine the pain, imagine that excruciating feeling of having to push yourself up again and again just so you could breathe out. And this would go on and on until either they lost strength and they could no longer push themselves up or the Romans, to quicken the death, would break the legs so that they couldn't push themselves up. And I used the word because the word had to be used to describe the pain that was on the cross and that word is excruciating. That's where that word comes from. It's for the pain that was inflicted on the cross. One person even describes crucifixion as this, the most vicious and torturous and one of the most effective means of depravity that humanity has ever created. It was shameful for a Roman to even think about crucifixion. They wouldn't even talk about it. We talk about it today like there's no big deal, but they wouldn't even talk about it. It was something that was literally for the worst of the worst of society, and you were shamed beyond belief, you would, it would not be a topic of discussion at your dinner table. You wouldn't find it there. And the Romans, Justin Martyr said this, this is the Romans' view. For the Romans declare that our madness, that Christians' madness, consists in this, that we give to a crucified man a place second to the unchangeable and eternal God, the creator of all. For they do not discern the mystery that is in this. So the Romans actually thought that Christians were mad, that they would even worship a crucified man. 
This is how shameful and ridiculous this idea seems. Why would you worship a crucified man? He has brought shame. He is, he is shamed beyond belief. He has been killed with criminals, the worst death that we conceive of. He has received. Why would you worship a man like this? To put it in the modern day terms, David Platt says this. Imagine taking a successful, well-dressed, a well-dressed man with a nice job, a big house, and a cool car, and a free-thinking woman who thrives on her independence, and then leading them to a garbage dump where a naked man hangs by nails on a tree covered in blood and telling them, this is your God. They will laugh at you, may possibly feel sorry for the man, and almost certainly will move on with their lives. Can you imagine how crazy that would seem today if you were to lead someone out into the woods and there was a man crucified and you said to someone, this is your God right here. What do you think they would say to you? They would think you're absolutely insane. Why would God put, him through this misery, put himself through this misery? If it was God, as they said, why can't you get yourself down? Why would you be so shamed as to be strung up naked there? This is the reality of what Jesus Christ went through, but also what Paul is saying. This is why it was foolishness. It doesn't make sense in our mind. We think God as being the highest being. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he is good. Yes, he is righteous. And we struggle to accept and realize that God, being all that, would go through such shame and suffering. But yes, this is the message that we preach. I want you to look at the very first verse in this passage here. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Now my first point is this this morning. The message of the cross either empowers us or it hinders us. In order to show you that this morning, first I want to look at two, two phrases here. One being perishing and one being being saved. Those are action words there. So what Paul is saying is that there are two groups of people. Either we are moving towards perishing, dying day by day, or we are moving towards being saved, being made more and more like Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit day by day. There's two groups of here that Paul is saying. So either we are empowered by God because we have realized the truth that has been revealed through the crucifixion, and we are able to have a right relationship with God, and we, through the Holy Spirit, we become more and more like Christ, or we reject this, and we stay spiritually dead, and we become more and more dead inside. That's the reality of the world that we sit in today. Either we believe in Christ and we have hope and a peace or we leave it up to ourselves and we stumble over it. We find it hard to accept. And I find a lot of that is from our pride. We as human beings, like to, we're a prideful race. We're proud in our actions. We're proud in our achievements. We're, we're proud in our work and our efforts. You ask anyone, what do you work for? You're proud of what you do at work. Are you proud of what you do? Are you proud of your family? Are you proud of 
this boat you built? Are you proud of this shed you built? Whatever have you, we are proud in what we do. So it's hard for us to accept this because it means we have to take our pride down a notch. Because this foolishness that God used is not what we would have used for our salvation. The foolishness that God used puts us to shame. Because in all of our wisdom, we have yet been able to save ourselves. And in all of our wisdom, we have yet, in all of our strength, we have yet to be able to do what God has accomplished and what we deem foolish. We can't do it. We haven't been able to do it. Just imagine what Christ went through on that cross and how foolish it must have seemed that we worship a God who was crucified and then raised again from the dead. But also how much of a stumbling block that is. Verse 22 and 23 says, The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And I mentioned the word stumbling block already. It was a stumbling block for one main reason already. It was because Christ was crucified. Deuteronomy 21.23 says, If anyone is found guilty of an offense, deserving the death penalty, and is executed, and you hang his body on a tree... You are not to leave his corpse on a tree overnight, but are to bury him that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. So already Christians are going to the Jews, believing in who they say is God, is cursed. How can God be cursed? How can a God who is holy, who is righteous, who is pure be cursed? And Paul references in Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, curses everyone who is hung on a tree. So Christ took on the curse so that we may be set free. But yet that was a stumbling block. It was hard to accept that God could possibly lower himself to the point of being crucified on the cross, which gives you a new a new respect for Philippians 2, where it says he humbled himself even to the point of being crucified on the cross. The Jews would have found this so hard to accept that God could possibly take on a curse and for us, for our benefit. But this was also foretold, so in a sense they shouldn't have been surprised. For example, Isaiah 8.14 says, He will be, he, now, he will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over, and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. How do you not see this coming? (laughs) I mean, we can look back in hindsight, but God said, I'm going to put a rock in your path to make you stumble. So why would God make his people stumble? Along with this, Isaiah 28, 16 and Psalm 118, 22, both reference this block and say that it would be turned into a cornerstone. 
the stone the builders have rejected will be turned into a cornerstone. And you've, a lot of you probably already heard this, but I'm going to say anyways, a cornerstone will be placed by which all the measure of the building will be built on. If the cornerstone was off-level, the rest of the building would be off-level. Christ is our cornerstone by which the church is built on. Church is our, Jesus is our measuring point. If he was off-level, then the church would be off-level, but he is by the thing by which we, all, we measure all things by. So why would God cause his people to stumble? Well, first off, the Jews had an agreement with God, a covenant. It was a physical one, and that was through the act of circumcision. Okay? So it was a physical covenant, and they clung to their heritage. They were proud to be Jews. They were proud to be God's holy people. Whether they, whether they hung on to it just marginally or they were faithful, devout Jews, they hung on to this, that they were God's chosen people. But God, was, but God was more focused on the, physical, on, the, on the spiritual salvation than he was physically. Jews were looking for a physical salvation. They were looking for a Messiah that would come and save them physically from Roman reign. They were looking in terms of this physical world, while God was looking far ahead in terms of the spiritual and saying, no, you are dead spiritually and we need to solve that. So this is why we have this new agreement through the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross, a new covenant under Christ. This is why it was a stumbling block. God also wanted to show them, no, yes, it's important that you are my people, but you cannot claim that alone. That alone is not going to earn your salvation. This is a message that will either empower us, as I've said, because we realize the power of God in this, or it will hinder us because we are unable to come to terms with it, whether because of our pride or because we think we're smarter, think we're wiser. This is the message. In order to accept this, we have to humble ourselves, which is point two. The message of the cross humbles ourselves, humbles us. Because when we realize this message, we realize how much we fall short. Verse 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. We preach foolishness. And we have to humble ourselves and realize that this message sounds ridiculous. We have to humble ourselves and realize, as I've said, that we could not earn this ourselves. That God has taken what we deem foolish, what was probably the lowest idea, and brushed her aside. You wouldn't even talk about a daring table, and God's like, I'm going to use this to bring about your salvation, which you have yet to be able to attain by yourself. And we can never attain our own salvation. That's humbling. As I said, we like to pride ourselves on what we can do, but then God took probably the least thing in our society and used it for what we couldn't do. But not only that, we fall, not only do we fall short, but other religions fall short. In Islam, even if you follow the five pillars, if you keep them faithfully, the five pillars of their faith, and you were to meet Allah, 
you're still not guaranteed that you're getting in paradise. It's up to Allah and essentially by his good graces, if he's in a good mood, if he's going to forgive you or not. Whether you follow the five pillars or not, you're not guaranteed when you get there. In Buddhism, you're going to be reincarnated again and again and you may reach nirvana. In New Age thought, we simply take God and we put ourselves in that place so that solves nothing because we know how messed up we are. We fall short. All of our ideas, all of our attempts to reach God, to make ourselves right with God in our own strength, have failed. And then God takes what's foolish and does what's infinitely greater than what we could ever do. That puts us in our place. (laughs) Because God says, you can't do it. No, 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 you can't do it. You got it wrong. I have to do this. In order to show you I'm going to use the most thing, thing that is probably the most foolish and ridiculous idea. And I'm going to use that for your salvation so that you see my power. So that you see that I'm the one that gives you salvation. How humbling is that? As I said, Paul came to these Corinthians in his letter. And he says, what are you guys doing? You're placing your faith in these men. You see, the culture of the time, they replace a great emphasis, emphasis on rhetoric or your ability, your oral ability to win an argument. So the greater you were in your speech, the greater honor you had in society and the more followers you would have. But Paul says to them later on in this letter, he says, listen. I did not come to you with superiority of speech or wisdom. And I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. This is Paul. He said he came to him in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And he says, I didn't come to you with wisdom to begin with. And he goes on to say, he preached in demonstration of the spirit and of power So that your faith, so that the Corinthians' faith, would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He's bringing them back and saying, guys, I came to you. I wasn't wise when I came to you. I wasn't the greatest speaker. And I did that so that you would see the power of God through my words anyways. So that you would be saved through the power of God, not human wisdom. Now, no doubt Paul could could have been rational to them. He could have led them to God based on rationalism, but he knew the culture. He knew where he was. So he removed that and he just went to them with God. And he's reminding them, guys, you have placed your faith now and created divisions by saying, I follow Apollos or I follow Peter or I follow Paul. He said, no. Your your faith is not on man or man's wisdom, but your faith is in Christ and Christ alone. You see, in the Greeks, I've already touched on the Jews, so I'll go to the Greeks and the Gentiles now. To them, wisdom was the epitome of their society. As I said, they place a great emphasis on rhetoric, on your ability to win an argument. They love wisdom. They just ate it up. Put a bowl of wisdom down in front of them, and these guys would just eat it up all day long. So to them, this, this message was pure foolishness. 
It didn't make sense. For you see, when Paul says we preach Christ crucified, he's stating an oxymoron there. Because the term Messiah would, would have implied power, splendor, and triumph, while crucified implies weakness, defeat, and humiliation. So put those two terms together. We have a man who is powerful but weak, who, is, who has splendor but defeat, and there's triumph and humiliation. So to the Greeks, like, how does this make sense? Those are completely opposing terms. But you see, we serve a man who is also fully God. So therefore, in his weakness, there is power. In his defeat, we find splendor. And in his humiliation, we find triumph. That's how we interpret that. That in God's weakness, we find his power, the power of the gospel. In his defeat, there is splendor, but Christ was seated at the right hand of God. And in his humiliation, there was triumph, and that was triumph over the sin in our lives. And that was, sin was defeated. He triumphed over his defeat on the cross, over being humiliated. Which is why God says he will destroy the wisdom of of the wise when Paul quotes the Old Testament early on. And goes on to say, Guys, where is the scribe? Where is the debater here? You guys pride yourself on wisdom. You pride yourself on what you know. But which one of you could have done this? Which one of you could have accomplished this? God has put us all to shame. He has humbled us all. And I want you to realize here, I'm not saying wisdom is not a bad thing. I'm not saying it is not good for us to get degrees and degrees and degrees like Steve Da. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not good for us to study and to know our things. That's not the idea here. The idea is here who or what we place our faith in. And that's what Paul was, was addressing here. Is that you guys can be smart. You guys can have wisdom. That's great. But we do not place that above Jesus Christ and his bride, which is the church. We do not place that above who we place our faith in. And this leads us to my third point, which is that the power of the, the message of the cross is stronger than anything we could ever accomplish. For you see, the last verse here, verse 25, clearly states God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and weak, his weakness is stronger than human strength. Figure that out. God, in his weakest moment, which was, which was at the cross, by the way, was still stronger than anything that we could do in our own strength. And I looked it up, and the 2019 World Strongman winner was a man called Martins Lassie. Okay? So I looked up a couple of these things that these tests have to go through, and I am not a strong man. I will tell you that. They have to lift up these big stones, and they can weigh up to 350 pounds. And they pick them up off the ground and put them up on a pedestal. 350 pounds. That's almost two of me. <laughs> Not only that, but there's a dumbbell press. Dumbbell press. That's like, that's like two, over 200 pounds. It's almost putting a me over your head and doing this with me. That's strong. You guys don't seem impressed, but I'm impressed. Like, you see these men doing it, and I'm like, oh, I can't do that. 
like, what kind of determination do you have to do this? I mean, these are strong men. But yet, in, uh, you know where I'm going with this. Even in that strength, God in his weakness on the cross was stronger than that. Any feat you can think of a human being doing, whether it be climbing Mount Everest or what have you, God's accomplishment on the cross was still greater than anything we could accomplish. And it's stronger than anything we can accomplish. You see, I've mentioned a couple of times about how we need to place our faith in Christ. And when we do that, we realize the power of the message of God, that there is power in that, that we are set free in that. And this idea is not a new one. For in Romans 1, 16 to 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But what are we placing our faith in? For the Corinthians, they had... They had stumbled and they had started putting their faith in their men and their great leaders. For us, where do we put our faith? Do we rest alone in Christ? Do we realize that what he accomplished is far more than what we could ever accomplish? And for the Corinthians, this probably started with preferences. They probably preferred this guy to preach over another. And no doubt we have our own preachers, some who we relate to more than others, some who can explain Scripture to us better than others. But that's not who we place our faith in. We could have worship leaders or musicians that we prefer on Sunday over others. But again, that's not who we place our faith in. We won't be able to you know, personally get more from the service because of this or more from the Word of God for this, but that's not where our faith is placed. What Paul is saying to them and to us is that our faith is only to be placed in Jesus Christ. Because the cross, no matter how foolish, no matter how ridiculous it is, is the only means by which there is salvation. So as I said, we can't do it on our own. We fall short. We fall short, and we all know this. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all fall short. To sin means to miss the mark. If any of you have been axe throwing or have done archery or even shot a gun, you know what it's like to miss the mark. No matter how hard we try, we keep missing the mark. And that was the problem of our sin. That's the problem of our human attempts. We keep missing the mark. So when we place our faith in Christ, we have to do that, place our faith simply in Christ. Because if we don't, then we're saying to Christ, your sacrifice was not enough. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it is finished. There's nothing more for you to do. I'm sure we've all been to the point, and I'm guilty of this, where you've done something, you've screwed up, you've messed up, and you go to God, I'll do better, I'll be better. I promise. What you're saying to God then is like, your sacrifice is not enough. I'm going to make this right. I'll be better next time. I promise. I'll get it right next time. But God's saying, no, you place your faith in me, and I'll help you through it next time. 
not on your strength, but in mine. When we go to God and say, God, I'll do better, you're rubbing it in his face and saying, no, my actions will earn my salvation. My actions will make me right before you. When all along, the only thing that makes us right before God is Jesus Christ himself. And the fact that we can place our faith in him and we can go to God and we say, yes, I'm sinful, yes, but I can claim Jesus. His righteousness is mine because I've placed my faith in him. Do we realize that? Do we realize that truth? Do you realize the freedom that is in that, the power of God that is in that message? And no matter how much you screw up, you can't catch God off guard. When you ask God to to save you, when you place your faith in God, he knew what you are going to do. If you walk outside these doors, God knows what you're going to do. You can't catch him off guard. So why, why do we think we can be so proud of going to God? God, I'll do better. God knows your heart. He knows you're probably not going to do better. So how dare we? How dare we go to the cross and say that what I have could be better than what you've done? Think about what I've explained crucifixion is. In saying that I'll do better, we're saying to God, my actions in the next few moments are going to be better than what you've, what, the sacrifice you paid. How offensive is that? When Paul is saying, place your faith in Christ, he's saying, place your faith in Christ and nothing else. Let it be Christ in Christ alone who has paid for your salvation. A pagan argued with a Christian apologist, and he once said, to say that their ceremonies center on a man put to death for his crime and on the fatal wood of the cross is to assign these abandoned wretches, strong language, to assign these abandoned wretches sanctuaries which are appropriate to them and the kind of worship they deserve. So in other words, if Christians are so degenerate or in such a moral intellectual decline that they worship a crucified man, they deserve to worship a crucified man. That's someone who is not able to accept the gospel. All he sees is pure foolishness. He sees no wisdom in the cross. He doesn't acknowledge the power of God that has been revealed in that mystery. So why would God reveal this way? Why would he give us something so hard to swallow? There are two ways we can look at this. Either God can give us multiple ways to him, which I think would be far more cruel, because if all religions lead to God, then look at all the strife they have caused, all the fighting, all the wars, all the killing, all the arguing, all the hatred. That would be no God I would want to serve, who would essentially pit his creation against each other. Or then what if God gave us an easy way to salvation? Again, an easy way salvation would teach us nothing. You know yourself, sometimes we need to learn things the hard way. And it turns out, in regards to God, we need to learn things the hard way. If you have kids, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of in Matt's shoes. I have, a, I have a little girl. She's two. She won't be three till, till December. But I tell you, there's some things that she needs to learn the hard way. And I have to tell I have to put her in time out. And she cries and cries. 
but she needs to learn what's good for her. Our salvation that would be easy to accept would be of no benefit to mankind because we, we would not humble ourselves to realize how much greater God is than us or how much wiser or stronger he is. So what can we take away from this? We can take away that, one, we don't puff ourselves up. Yes, we can, be proud, we can be proud of the things we do. You can take pictures of your children. You can take pictures of this boat you bought. That's fine. You can put it out. But what's the most important thing in life? It's not what we place our pride in. It's what we place our faith in. And as long as your faith <laughs> exceeds your pride, you're doing okay. In our book study, we talked about the parable of the mustard seed. And for once, I think it finally kind of broke through to me. That what Jesus was saying when he says, no, you have the faith of a mustard seed. He's not talking, it doesn't matter how small that seed is. It doesn't matter if it's the smallest seed in the world. That's not the point. What Jesus is saying is you even have this much amount of faith and you have it in me, then that's enough. Let that sink in. If you have faith this big, because again, we like to pride ourselves. We like to think, yes, I have faith in God. But Jesus said, if you even have faith this big, then that's, and it's in me, then that is enough. You have trusted me. We don't puff ourselves up. But another thing we take away from this is that we rest in God. Because by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we are at peace with God. Therefore, we can have peace in God. See, Scripture describes us as enemies of God. But through the sacrifice of Christ, again, who we place our faith in, we are no longer enemies of God, but we become adopted sons. And Paul mentioned this in his prayer before I preached. Thank you for adopting us. By placing our faith in Christ, we become sons and daughters of the one true living God the God that we were once enemies of, simply because we place our faith in his son. And if you want to know if we can truly place our faith in God this much, read Romans. Romans 3.23 says that a person is justified by their faith and not their works. Romans 5.01 says that because we have been justified, we are now at peace with God. That's just two verses. Keep reading, and you'll find so many references to how you can be at peace with God simply because of your faith, not because of what you do. So we can rest easy knowing that our faith is in Jesus Christ and that no matter what we do, no matter how bad we screw up, that we just claim Jesus, we go back to him. And yes, you repent, and you, you say, God, I messed up. I don't know if I'm going to do better next time, but I need you to help me. You can be assured that you are at peace with God. You can have that assurance. Know that you are saved. Know that you are his and that you are wholly his. That you are being continually transformed. Again, those two, ver- those two ver- action words at the beginning, perishing and being saved. Being saved is a process. We're continually being made more and more like Christ. So if you mess up, that's fine. You're going to to make a mistake. 
but God will keep helping you do better, not because of your strength, but because of your faith in him. And again, remember that we do not earn our salvation. We can't come to God and say, I'll do better. We come to God and say, no, God, help me be better. 1 Corinthians, so later on in this book, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 to 23, says, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word or life or death or the present or the future. So all things are yours, whether it's your teachers, whether it's everything that's here now is yours. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Everything is in Christ. Be at peace with that. Rest easy knowing that it doesn't depend on you, because again, if it depended on us and our strength, I've already shown you how many times we can fall short. Some of us have probably sinned here on the way to church. Some of us may have sinned here in church. I don't know. We can't get it right. We fall short. But that doesn't mean that we're any less saved. Growing up for me, and this changed thankfully later on, but growing up for me, it was if I cursed or if I did something, I had to ask for forgiveness right then. Because I was afraid that if God came back in that moment and I didn't ask for forgiveness, I wasn't going to heaven. But then as I grew up, I realized, how little do we think of God's grace? How little do I think of that sacrifice? That God didn't realize that I would think hateful thoughts about someone. Or I would get extremely frustrated and may even do something or say something to someone who cut me off when I go down the street, which is a very good possibility. How little do I think of God that I don't think he didn't foresee this and he forgives me anyways? We have that assurance. And the last thing I want us to know, again, is that we are united in Christ by our faith through one spirit, one body, one church. That there are going to be no small divisions among us. Yes, we're going to have our disagreements. We're going to have our likes and dislikes. But we are united in Christ through one faith and one spirit. We are one body for his glory. And when we leave these doors this morning, bring that hope with you into this world. It's been said, I have a desire to plant a church here. Whether in, the dark, in this dark city, I want to plant a church so it can be a beacon of light to people to show them who Jesus is. We have that hope. We have that light. This is our message that has brought us life, that has brought us power, and has brought us peace with God. So when we leave these doors, what are we doing with this message? Are we placing our faith in Christ? But more importantly, are we telling others about our faith in Christ? Are we showing them what it means to be a Christian? What it means to truly place your faith in God and say, yeah, I messed up, but my God forgives me anyways. I can't earn it. Are we showing people that they can't earn their salvation? That if you feel lost because you feel you're not good enough, good, because none of us are good enough, and only God is good enough. That's a great place to start with someone. If they already feel they're not good enough, that's a great place. Most of your work is already done for you. How much do we take this message to heart? 
How much do we place our faith in Jesus Christ? This wis- the wisdom of this world is foolish, yes, but the message we preach is foolish, but it's still far wiser than anything that we could accomplish. If you have placed your faith in Jesus already, great. Like I said, go out and share that hope. Be that hope. Be that light for people. Show them the hope that we can be redeemed. And if you haven't, but you want to place your faith in Jesus, then Pastor Steve or any of the elders here will more than gladly talk with you about that and what that means. Because again, it's not a simple decision. Jesus says to count the cost of what it means to be my disciple. So we need to count the cost of what it means to follow Christ above all else, above what society says, above what our family says, our mothers, our fathers, our brothers and sisters. That you had to be able to put Christ first in your life. Let us be foolish for God in the best way possible. Foolish in our wisdom, foolish in our approach, but in wisdom in God's eyes that we were able to go out with all humility, with all strength in God and say, yes, this is your God hung on this tree, but he has done this for you so that you might be saved. Bow with me as I pray this morning. Father, I just thank you for this message. I thank you that you are able, you are so much able to give us salvation, that you are willing to forgive us, you are willing to give us your grace. Jesus, that you are willing to come down on that cross to suffer, to suffer, to be ashamed for our benefit, oh God. I thank you that we can place our faith in you and in you alone and be saved, that we don't have to earn it. Father, I pray that this truth will resonate in our hearts as we leave this place, God, that we would just be at peace with you, that we would realize the power that is in this message, how your power has been displayed on the cross, and what that means for the people around us, what that means for the people we come into contact with, God. Lord, I pray that you would just bless us as we leave this place, Lord, that your anointing would be upon each one of us, Lord, and that we would just Have an ear open for you, God, for your Holy Spirit throughout the rest of this day. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.